Let's continue to worship our good God as we read the word together. We're reading from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 22. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited into the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Am I on? Yes, I'm on. Great. Love to be with you this morning. If I haven't met you, my name is Paul. Uh, it's a joy to see faces, a joy to preach God's word, and I'm going to pray for us. Uh, Father, thank you that your word is living and active and sharper than that double-edged sword, and we, we long, Father, to be taught, to be trained, to be corrected, to be encouraged, to be fed and nourished. And so we come now humbly to your word, uh, and we pray by the power of your spirit that you would teach us. Open our eyes, Lord, to see glorious truths this morning, and we ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let me just share a bit about my personal story. Um, so I became a follower of Jesus Christ in 1990. That's 30 years ago. And I, I still remember when I first uh, understood the concept of grace, the fact that, that God could 
show his undeserved love and favor on me and could love me. And I was just blown away that, that God would love me and choose me and cherish me. And those, those early years as a Christian were, were really quite exciting. I lapped up every single Bible course. I did a one-to-one discipleship relationship. I led in kids' church. I led a Bible study. I read every possible book, you know, Cross of Christ and Knowing God. And then God called me to Bible college. And so I signed up for Bible college, and I loved it because I was learning all these doctrinal truths about God and learning about leadership and learning about pastoral care. But looking back, there are a couple of red flags. After about 10 years of being a Christian, my, my relationship with God was, was less relational and more intellectual. Looking back, it felt like I, I actually loved doctrinal knowledge more than I loved Jesus himself. And I become spiritually arrogant, I guess. Very critical of any church that did things slightly differently. I was convinced that my way of reading the Bible or my way of doing church was the only way. And what God did was two things. God kept connecting me with with Christians, brothers and sisters, who were so different from me, but they had this, this spiritual fervor and this passion for Jesus, and they spoke about Jesus in this real relational way, and they talked about how they expected Jesus to be at work in their life today and blessing him today. And they oozed gratitude and joy and thankfulness. And that was quite confronting for me. And then my Bible college placed me in a church that I would never have chosen to go to. And they did things so differently. But again, I kept meeting these Christians who oozed joy and expectancy about what Jesus might do in their life today. And it felt like God was challenging me to examine my own heart. And it wasn't pleasant. Because I realized that I started to love church more than I loved Jesus. And loved processes and programs more than the person of Jesus. And I realized I'd actually started to become religious. And I realized I talked a lot about the God of the past and what God had done at Calvary. And I talked a lot about what God would do in the future in heaven. But I talked very little about what, was, what God was doing in my life now, today, like I love the Jesus of Calvary and I love the Jesus of eternity, but the Jesus of today, he was kind of silent. And that was really confronting for me. I was at Bible college. And I'd seen many Christians go down this path, this sort of this mundane, tired, exhausted, living off your faith from 10 years ago, but not a rich relationship with Jesus today and expecting to experience his blessings today. And I needed to to recapture my first love, recapture my love for Jesus. And that was 20 years ago. And the last 20 years of living with Jesus personally as my, my relationship with him, experiencing him today, every day, and expecting blessings every day has been truly wonderful. And I share that because today I actually want to show you Jesus, not church, not religion, but show you Jesus and all the blessings that he is going to pour out on your lives if you just want to walk closely with him. 
So we're in John chapter 2, and this book is called the Book of Signs because it is, it's composed of only seven signs. A sign is a pointer that points you to who Jesus is. And today we get this first sign. It's interesting, the first sign is not Jesus walking on water, and it's not Jesus raising Lazarus. The first sign is Jesus turning water into wine. Now, now friends, this actually happened. This is the story. It actually happened. And I think sometimes we read the Gospels a bit like we're reading one of the epistles. So what I want to do today is just to, to, to retell the story. So keep your Bibles open so you can follow it. And I'm going to play Nathaniel, who was one of those first disciples. I want you to imagine that I'm Nathaniel, and I'm, te- I'm teaching my grandchildren. I'm teaching my grandchildren. But what happened when I saw Jesus turn water into the wine? With me? Hey, kids, remember when I first met Jesus? So Philip came to me, and he said, Nathaniel, we found the Messiah. And I went, Really? Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip just said, come and see. And I met Jesus. And it's like it was life transforming because he knew me better than I knew myself. But, you know, when when it comes to faith, kids, faith is not static. So I had so much to learn. I had like a foggy faith. And I kept on growing. And then three days later, on the third day, verse 1, a wedding took place at Cana. That's my hometown, Nathaniel. I come from Cana in Galilee. I can't remember whose wedding it was. It could have been one of Jesus' half-brothers. We don't really know. Anyway, Jesus' mother was there. She was a widow by now. And Jesus was there with his disciples. There was Andrew. There was Simon Peter. There was Philip. There was Nathaniel. There was John who wrote this gospel. And we're all there celebrating this wedding. Now, you've got to understand, kids, Weddings would last a whole week. Can you imagine that? A week of celebration, singing and dancing and food and wine. And then it happened. I just watched this waiter pull this bottle of red wine saying, that's the last one. Really? This is a culture of shame where you can't run out of wine. Now, I'm not sure why Mary was dragged into it, but, but she said, they've run out of wine. And now Jesus, I was quite shocked. He wasn't rude. He wasn't disrespectful. He said, dear woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. I, I, I thought, what, a, what, on, what the heck are you talking about? He said that lots of times, my hour has not yet come. And then one day, about three years later, he said, my hour has come. And then they crucified him. And it's kind of weird because Mary is talking about wine and Jesus is talking about his death. Anyway, you've been asked to do something which is completely and utterly ridiculous. Well, Jesus pointed out these six stone water jars, the, the, the type used for ceremonial cleaning. Now, six is a number of incompletion. And they were massive. 20 to 30 liters, that's 500 gallons. And Jesus said, fill those with water to the brim. I'm thinking, what are you talking about? They want wine, not water. But they obeyed. And then Jesus said, take some of that and take it to the master of the bank. I'm thinking, this is going to be ridiculous. They're going to be a laughingstock. But the master of the banquet, he sipped this wine. And then he smiled. And then he called over the bridegroom and said, this is incredible. Most people 
they serve the really expensive wine first, and then when people are a bit drunk later on, they serve the cheap stuff. But you have saved the best till last. I'm thinking, that was water, not wine. What's he talking about? And then I realized that a miracle had happened, and Jesus had turned this water into wine, not just any old wine, the best wine, the most exquisite vintage wine you've ever tasted. And not just any old wine, but abundance of wine. There was 500 litres, that's five bottles per person at the wedding. And then I remembered Amos chapter 9, where we were told that when the Messiah comes, he will bring new wine and wine in abundance. And I was like, I get it now. He is the Messiah, and he's bringing blessings upon blessings upon blessings of this new messianic age. Anyway, we had a holiday down the coast at Capernaum, and, but it was, pass, it was Passover time. You know the Passover? The Passover is a time when God's people look back to the Exodus, where, where God's people put the, the blood of the lamb around the doorpost. And when God saw the blood of the Lamb, he would pass over them. And every year, 100,000 people went to Jerusalem for the Passover. And we went there. As we approached the temple, this is outer court. And that's where the Gentiles are supposed to go. But we couldn't get in. Do you know why? Because they turned that court into this marketplace. And there was goats, and there were sheep, and there was doves, and there was these money changers. And it was absolute pandemonium. Now, I, I get it, kids, because if you're going to come to the temple, you meet, need to offer a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice. And if you come a long way from Jerusalem, you would buy your sacrifice close to the temple. I get that. And, and I get that you need money changes because you have to pay a temple tax, as you have to change your currency close to the temple. But those stalls and those money changes, they used to be down in the valley, down the Kidron Valley, but what these religious people had done is they brought them right up into the temple. And so you couldn't get into the temple to pray. And Jesus was furious. You know it's right to be angry sometimes, don't you? You know it's right when you see God's name being dishonored, it is right to stir in your soul and get angry about that. Well, Jesus got this whip and he drove out this cattle, and he drove out the doves, and he drove out the money trade, and he said, how dare you turn my father's house, a house of prayer, into a marketplace? And he was right. How dare these religious people, how dare these religious people stop people from worshipping God? And how dare they stop people from praying? It was so worldly, and there was no worship. And the Jews hated that. And they, they, they tried to trick him. They said, said, what's your credentials? What sign will you give us to show you have the authority? And I'm thinking, what sign? He's just turned water into wine. He, he's just cleansed the temple. What more do they want? And Jesus said, I'll give you a sign. Destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. Now, he didn't say... I will destroy this temple. Uh, they twisted that at, at his trial later on. Jesus never said, I will destroy this temple. He said, you destroy the temple and I will rebuild it. And I'm thinking, that is ridiculous. A bit like me saying, destroy this church and in three days I'll get the architect's plans and the DA approval and I'll get the whole thing built in three days. It's crazy. But three years later, I got it. Because three years later, when his hour had come, they crucified him. 
And then three days later, he was raised from the dead. And it's like his body was rebuilt. And then I got it. Because the temple, the place where we went to meet with God, the place where we went to get forgiveness, the place we went to worship, we didn't go to a place anymore. We went to a person because Jesus' body is that temple. And you get that, kids? When Jesus has come, he's ushered in this new era of new wine. And now Jesus has come. You don't go to a building. You go to a person. So I'm just here today to tell you, keep coming to Jesus. So that's the story. That is John 2. And you're supposed to read it like that. I've got two very quick points, but they're life-changing points. Here's the first one. Jesus offers you abundant blessings. I'll say it again. He offers you abundant blessings. Blessings upon blessings upon blessings. That is the point of, of the wedding at Cana. So following Jesus will mean extraordinary blessings. Yes, in the future. Yes, of course, eternal blessings, but blessings also now. This is not about a wedding. It's the most famous wedding in the world, more famous than any royal wedding. But nobody knows who the couple is because it's not about the wedding. And it's not about the miracle. Now, this does teach you that, that Jesus cares and Jesus has the power to provide Whatever you need. You've got to believe that about Jesus. He cares, he sees your need, and he can provide whatever need you have. You've got to believe that. But that's not the point of this miracle. What John is saying here is not that Jesus came to turn water into wine. He's saying much more than that. John is saying that Jesus is the Messiah who ushers in the messianic age filled with extraordinary blessings of new wine and wine in abundance. And we don't get John 2 because we don't understand our Bibles. Amos chapter 9 says this. The days are coming when new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. And I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They'll plant vineyards and drink their wine and they will make gardens and eat their fruit. Or Jeremiah 31, they will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, the flocks, and the herds. Or Isaiah 25, the Lord of hosts will prepare a feast, a feast of aged wine, finely aged wine. That's what God people have been looking for and waiting for, for the Messiah to come. So he bring in this new wine and this new era, an era of abundance and blessings upon blessings upon blessings. Now, this might shock you. There is such a thing as the prosperity gospel. There really is. Now, of course, churches have distorted that gospel. The Bible never promises perfect health, perfect wealth, and perfect happiness. That is a wrong prosperity gospel. We've got to fight against that. But my fear is, for many of us, when we hear the word blessings or prosperity, our mind goes immediately to heaven and to eternity. And of course that is true. Of course the ultimate fulfillment of John 2 is in eternity. That's the only place where there's going to be perfect health and perfect happiness. But that doesn't mean there's nothing good in the here and now. When Jesus comes with this new wine, 
He's saying, when you come to me, you'll experience a, a quality of life, a quality and a quantity that far exceeds what you can ever imagine. The blessing of God's provision for you now, and yes, sometimes miraculous provision. The, the, the blessing of God's healing now, and yes, sometimes miraculous healings. The blessing of God's peace now, and let alone all the, all the spiritual blessings that you have in Christ. If you're in Christ and Christ has come, the spiritual blessings of, of being loved, being chosen, being adopted, being forgiven, being redeemed, having satisfaction and security and joy today. Someone once famously said this, Jesus performed the greatest miracle of water into wine. But the church has somehow managed to perform another great miracle of turning that wine back into water. And what he's saying is that many churches are very good at presenting the Christian life as drab, dreary, negative, without any hint of any blessings. Please don't ignore the abundant blessings that Jesus can give you today. Through the spirit of Jesus, you can enjoy security, significance, success, purpose, meaning, contentment. Through the spirit of Jesus today, you can enjoy God's provision, his protection, his presence. That's why we sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. That's the new wine bit, the extraordinary abundant blessings. And number two, he wants a rich relationship with you. He wants a rich relationship. He hates, hates, hates religion. That's the purpose of the, the cleansing of the temple. He, he challenges religious people who find their security in a place or a building or a system or a process or in a particular style of worship. When, you, when you're more focused on, on what you do in church rather than the persons you come to worship, that is called religion. And Jesus storms into the temple. The temple was the first century place of worship where you went to offer your sacrifice to receive forgiveness. You went to meet with your God and experience his glory. And Jesus comes and he rebukes religious people. He rebukes their pride. He rebukes their arrogance. He rebukes their worldliness. He rebukes them from stopping people from entering their outer court because they have made all these barriers or these hoops you have to get through and churches are very good at that aren't we we're preventing people from coming to meet jesus by our religious practices jump through this hoop do this don't do that and god hates religion because in the person of jesus christ he is the temple he is the person you go to for forgiveness. He's the person you go to to worship God. He's the person that you go to to experience and see God's glory. So it's all about your relationship with Jesus. He doesn't want religion. He wants a relationship. How do you spot a religious person? Religious people are great at turning faith into some kind of business, finding their joy in the stuff that they do, in the liturgy they say, the songs they sing. We're very good at talking about church and our superior theological intellect. 
And evangelicals can be very, very religious because we love our rituals and the way that we do church and our superior intellectual Bible knowledge and we can be very critical of other churches. And that's why I actually think that COVID has been so, so wonderful for this church in many ways. It's been terrible, but it's also been a blessing because with, with COVID, we've been stripped away of all religion, of all programs, of all busyness, and we're just left with the one essential thing who is Jesus Christ. As we sit in our homes with our Bibles and our prayer, we're just left with Jesus. And it's not rocket science. He did not come to start a religion. He came to have a relationship. So when, when twice in this passage we're told the disciples believed or had faith. And my fear is that when we think about faith, we, we often think as faith as God has invited us into this feast or invited us into heaven. And the problem with that, this concept of faith being an invitation that you accept, is that sometimes, you know, you enjoy the feast, you enjoy the food, you enjoy the company, but you ignore the person who's invited you. This is faith. Faith is a bit like the Lord Jesus Christ getting down on one knee before you personally and proposing to you and saying, inviting you to be his bride, part of his bride that's called the church. And Jesus, as the bridegroom, says, I've done it all, you know. For richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, I will be faithful to you. I will cherish you. I'll stick by you. I'll love you. I'll provide for you. And all I'm asking you to do is to walk closely with me and to enjoy that relationship with me. That is faith. It's a relationship, a walking, talking, living relationship with Jesus. It's less about systems, less about processes, less about buildings, less about structures, and all about the person of Jesus. So are you sitting here today as a person of faith with this rich, real relationship with Jesus? And if you are, can I ask you to enjoy that and every day to have this expectation of what God could do in your life and the blessings you might enjoy today? Please don't be religious. It's the worst way to live. But that real, rich relationship is just so beautiful. Let me pray. May the Lord bless us and keep us. And may the Lord make his face shine upon us and be gracious to us. And may the Lord turn his face towards us and give us peace.